NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you think biological warfare began with the threat of anthrax, think again. Ancient warriors who defied the Roman Empire often conscripted nature to help fight their battles. They went out with terracotta pots and very carefully gathered stinging scorpions whose uh, sting can be fatal. And then they took them back to their fortress and they waited for the Roman siege. This week, a look at the biological and chemical weapons of the past and present. In the hands of an enemy, industrial chemicals such as chlorine could wreak mass destruction. And investigators say security at U.S. plants is lax. Uh, it got to the point where I was simply walking into plants, uh, saying hello to workers on the way, uh, even asking them, I mean, where, where are your most dangerous uh, chemicals? And, and they would take me to them. The nation at chemical risk, coming up on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Biowarfare is commonly regarded as a recent phenomenon. Smallpox martyrs, dirty bombs, and anthrax attacks are often assumed to be the products of modern science. But new research reveals that our impulse to weaponize nature can be traced back more than 3,000 years. Some of these weapon systems were crude, others complex. And from the very outset, the moral ambivalence over their use has mirrored today's debate over deploying weapons of mass destruction. Adrian Mayer is a classical folklorist who has stockpiled a surprising amount of evidence of infectious and toxic warfare in antiquity. She's put it all in her book, Greek Fire, Poison Arrows, and Scorpion Bombs, Biological and Chemical Warfare in the Ancient World. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. Where? Did you get the idea to write such a book? Well, you know, after 9-11 and the uh, attacks with anthrax, I read all these editorials talking about uh, the beginning of biological uh, and chemical warfare, and they, every historian and every editorialist traced it to 1346, the Mongol invasion of uh, our siege of Kaffa, in which uh, plague-ridden bodies were catapulted over the walls. It's a very famous incident, but it, I knew that the idea and the impulse for winning by unfair means and weaponizing nature must go back much further, and I just began to delve into my own files. And I, I keep uh, files on marginal topics in classics, um, strange ways to die, uh, diabolical weapons, things like that, and I I was staggered by the amount of material I actually found. Well, how, how do you do your research? You, do you start with myths, or, or do you go to the historical record? I uh, started with myth in this case because I remembered the myth of Hercules um, and his, uh, uh, his labors. His second labor was to kill the Hydra monster, and Hydra means uh, water snake, poisonous water snake in Greek, but, but this Hydra was a monster, of course, fit for a hero to kill. And I remembered that he dipped his arrows in the venom of that monster after he, after he killed the Hydra serpent. And therefore, he had invented the first biological weapons. It was right there in, in ancient myth, and no one had noticed uh, the relevance to modern biological weaponry. Then I moved into historical uh, literature, reading uh, ancient historians and travel writers and geographers to find actual real-life incidents of biological and chemical warfare. Help me get an idea of the kinds of uh, biochemical weaponry that existed uh, in antiquity. Uh, could you perhaps start by explaining the title of your book? I mean, what's Greek fire? What, 
what are scorpion bombs? And not to mention poison arrows. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> poison arrows were, in fact, invented by Hercules. So I'll start with those, actually. There were uh, real-life warriors in antiquity that were encountered by the Greeks and other cultures. They were the Scythians. They lived in Central Asia. And they actually did dip their arrows in the venom of poisonous snakes, thereby creating a weapon that was a definite biological uh, armament. And it meant that... Uh, Bravery against such weapons didn't really count. The guy didn't even have to be a good marksman. He could just nick you with an arrow dipped in snake venom, and, and you'd die a gruesome death. And indeed, wasn't Greek fire considered really horrific, that if you ran into this stuff in a naval battle, that that was it, you'd be done? The reaction in antiquity to Greek fire has been compared to our uh, reaction to the atom bomb. It was the most devastating and most feared and dreaded weapon of antiquity. Um, it's a it's a combination of of a, a weapon system and a, a devastating ammunition that was based on petroleum products. So it, it uh, was made with naphtha, quicklime, and sulfur in a in a recipe that has been lost. But its effects were much like napalm. So it was a chemical weapon uh, of mass destruction used in, in naval battles in the seventh century A.D. Uh, scorpion bombs, uh, one of my favorite dastardly weapons of, of antiquity, uh, were used against the Roman uh, legionnaires in uh, what is now Iraq at the uh, fortress of Hatra. The Romans were advancing on this fortified city. Uh, they wanted to take it over because it controlled the caravan routes, but the citizens of Hatra were, were ready. They went out with terracotta pots and very carefully gathered stinging scorpions, okay. whose uh, sting can be fatal, and they probably threw in a lot of assassin bugs as well. And then they took them back to their fortress, and they waited for the, for the Roman siege. And when the Romans began to scale the walls, they hurled the scorpion bombs down on the legionnaires. And this is one of the first times in uh, Roman history that, that the Romans actually gave up a siege. They usually won a siege, even if it took a year. But in this case, they withdrew. Now, let's see. The ancient biochemical weapons you have come across now, I'd say, what, fall into a few broad categories. We've got poisons and projectiles, incendiaries, contagions, even the drafting of animals and insects for war. Um, That's right. What are some of the lesser-known examples? One of my favorites, uh, uh, chemical incendiary, was red-hot sand that was used against Alexander the Great's troops at Tyre in the 4th century B.C. Uh, the people of Tyre heated sand, uh, and silicon actually t uh, will has a very low melting point and can retain the heat. So they heated sand in shields over fires and then catapulted a rain of red-hot sand down on Alexander's troops. And this is a precursor to thermite bombs, which, which uh, explode tiny particles of metal and, and would have the, exactly the same effect. Um, and that's a, that's a sort of forerunner of an incendiary bomb. And um, I want you to talk a bit about the, the, the poison or poison theme that's in your book. I'm thinking of those war elephants that trampled their own handlers sometimes during battle, or, or if you were an archer and you had a poison arrow and you nicked yourself. The problems of uh, what is now called blowback or friendly fire or collateral damage was envisioned as early as the Greek myths. Uh, Hercules died by his own weapons. Uh, many of his friends were wounded by poison arrows. 
There were problems with uh, people using dangerous animals in warfare. Uh, war elephants could could suddenly run amok and trample their own side. Um, people who used naphtha, which is a very volatile incendiary, uh, certainly suffered a lot of blowback problems if the wind changed. And that would that would serve also for chemical weapons in the form of noxious clouds of smoke. So the uh, the problems of self-injury with uh, biological weapons was recognized at the very earliest uh, conception of such tactics. How acceptable was the use of biological weapons in ancient times? There were always moral qualms about using biological weapons and chemical weapons and taking unfair advantage. And people have, since antiquity, also had an idea about rules of war, proper rules of war. Um, the ancient Greeks, for instance, thought that projectile weapons were taking unfair, an unfair advantage. They thought that uh, an archer would be – you could admire an archer for his marksmanship and skill, and yet uh, they were not a, a model of bravery and courage, for instance, because they they shot from afar, never uh, really putting themselves in danger. They, they were able to avoid face-to-face -face battle. There were certain rules of war in each society. Um, the other problem is that biological weapons are difficult to control, difficult to aim, uh, difficult to uh, avoid collateral damage and friendly fire. Therefore, that means that if you poison the well of a besieged city, for instance, you're you're not just uh, you're not just killing the combatants, you're not just killing soldiers, you're in fact killing the entire. Uh, population of that city. That's the women and children. So it becomes a weapon of mass destruction in very quick order. Um, I'm just wondering if you could define bio-warfare for us. Um, most people seem to equate that with weapons of mass destruction, but I'm not sure that you do. What all these modern weapons that we've been talking about and their ancient precursors have in common is that they allow the creator to weaponize nature. Uh, according to the best understanding of the day, and so so therefore i'm I'm am using a, a rather more expanded definition of biological and chemical warfare in my book. Um, not all of the ancient examples fit the strict definition of biological or chemical uh, weapons that we use today, but they represent the earliest evidence of the principles and the practices that would evolve into modern uh, biological and chemical warfare. What kind of research for war devices? is going on now that really draws its inspiration from some of these uh, uh, weapons of antiquity. In recent years, the Pentagon has wired uh, rats to deliver explosives. So they've used sea lions as uh, sentinels or even as assassins in the, in the Gulf Wars. Um, the Pentagon has, has enlisted bees and wasps uh, as, uh, as, as agents of war. The Pentagon has also uh, unveiled some uh, what they call psychologically toxic armaments, which are designed by their bioengineers. And these are devised to uh, assault the senses of the enemy with intolerable odors and smells and uh, sound waves that actually incapacitate people. And yet uh, more than 2,000 years ago, armies in Asia had created uh, a kind of poison uh, arrow that whose smell was so 
intolerable and noxious that it was injurious to someone if it just whizzed by your face. The armies in Germany uh, were able to create blaring noises using their sp- their uh, shields as amplifiers to overwhelm the foe. So even even stench weapons and, and uh, acoustic weapons developed by the Pentagon have have analogs in antiquity. You write that uh, chemical weapons can have a shelf life of, what, uh, 100,000 years? How do you put them out of harm's way for generations if people don't want to use them? The problem of of how to destroy uh, biological or chemical weapons once you've created them was actually contemplated in ancient Greek myth. Hercules, when he was uh, struggling with the Hydra monster, had to keep in mind that the central head of this many-headed creature was immortal, could not be destroyed. So once he actually was able to kill the creature, he had to do something with that head, and he hit on a geological solution. He buried it deep in the earth and put a gigantic boulder on top of it. And if you just uh, just think for a moment about how we try to deal with the nuclear and chemical and biological weapons that we've created... Once we don't want to use them anymore, once we want to destroy them, it's very difficult. And we, too, have hit on a geological solution. We bury them deep under the ground, and we hope that no one will ever dig them up. It's a difficult dilemma. I think that, uh, once again here, the, the Hydra monster serves as a perfect symbol for the difficulties of, of dealing with the proliferating problems of biological warfare. Adrian Mayer is a classical folklorist who specializes in the early history of science. She's the author of Greek Fire, Poison Arrows, and Scorpion Bombs, Biological and Chemical Warfare in the Ancient World. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you very much. Coming up, a look at lax security in our nation's chemical plants. An investigative reporter tells all about vulnerable facilities where dangerous chemicals are kept. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Making chemicals in the U.S. is big business. There are more than 2,000 manufacturing plants nationwide, and the chemicals brewed in these factories are used in everything from plastics to pesticides. These facilities have been operating for years with little in the way of security regulations. And since September 11th, some people worry that stockpiles at these plants could be turned into weapons for terrorists. Carl Prine is a reporter with the Pittsburgh Tribune Review who tested the security of these chemical plants firsthand. Along with the camera crew from 60 Minutes, Mr. Prine took stock of dozens of chemical plants in four major U.S. cities. He reported his findings in a multi-part series for his newspaper. Carl Prine, welcome to Living on Earth. Hello. Tell me, what kind of chemicals, what kind of industrial chemicals do we have here in America? Just briefly. Well, there are hundreds of of very toxic chemicals that EPA regulates. Um, The ones um, that are particularly dangerous are are, uh, chlorine, gas, um, phosgene, methyl isocyanide, uh, chemicals that uh, actually have been used in the past as as weapons in warfare. Now, how could one weaponize chemicals out of America's industrialized plants? Well, sometimes it's as simple as blowing a hole in the containment vessel. If you do that, you'll release uh, a weapon of mass destruction. And um, what else might someone do? Well, there are other ways you could do it. You, you, you could uh, try different reactive chemicals to set up a reactive process that will um, blow a containment uh, vessel, or, or you can mix certain chemicals in such a way as to create a particularly lethal gas. Um, of course, uh, in the past, people worried about terrorists uh, stealing 
chemicals and then turning them into a, a weapon, uh, kind of combining them into a gaseous form and then release them. We thought we saw that in Om Shanriko's attacks in Tokyo. But uh, more recently, people are, are, are believe that uh, al-Qaeda, particularly since it has an interest in sowing uh, mass destruction in a very limited area, that probably a, a chemical plant itself would do the trick. Now, as I understand it, given the devastating effect the chemicals could have in an area, um, you and some other investigators decided to see just how easy or hard it might be for somebody who had, say, ill intent to get into a, a chemical plant with dangerous chemicals. Um, what were some of the plants that you investigated? It ran the, the gamut. I mean, th there were uh, very small uh, manufacturers and storage facilities uh, that nevertheless stored uh, catastrophic amounts of chemicals. And there were also major manufacturers, members of the American Chemistry Council, who have always said that their, their plants were the safest and that their security was the tightest. Some of them were, were large ones, like the Ashland uh, plant here in, in Pittsburgh, um, Neville Chemical, which is the one we did with 60 Minutes. Um, but also ones people have probably never heard, like the KIK plant in Houston, which is uh, actually a very small facility, but they have enough chlorine on site to affect 3 million people. And when I say affect, I mean kill, injure, or displace. 3 million people? Yes, and, and, those, uh, and those figures are actually created by the industry itself. The idea is that they report to the EPA uh, numbers that they think are likely in a worst-case scenario. The idea is to uh, prevent accidents. What plan of action did you have in approaching each of these sites? I mean, did you sort of have a universal security test? Well, actually, uh, it, at first I, I would case out the place. I would, I would tell myself, think like a terrorist. What would a terrorist do? And I'd try to find ways in. Uh, toward the end of it, after we went to uh, four cities, that was Pittsburgh, uh, Chicago, Houston, and Baltimore, uh, it got to the point where I was simply walking into plants, uh, saying hello to workers on the way, uh, even asking them, I mean, where, where are your most dangerous uh, chemicals? And, and they would take me to them. There was a, um, a Cisco plant in Chicago where one of the guards was asleep, and I simply walked by. Uh, the Patapsco Wastewater Facility in Baltimore was the same way, where they actually had paid for a guard, but the guard was sleeping. Um, in fact, at... Uh, at the Chicago plant, I actually walked, uh, woke the, the guard up on my way out and said, uh, goodbye. And he said, goodbye. Tell me what you saw when you investigated one of these plants. Uh, walk us into, say, uh, Neville Island. That's a, that's a facility right in your, uh, your town there of Pittsburgh that you investigated. Uh, what we did is, is you simply uh, walk along a rail line. It's uh, an unpoliced rail line. And you open a gate or you walk in one of the many open gates and you're in. And it's a very short walk to um, there. It was a very short walk to the boron trifluoride. To the boron trifluoride? Boron trifluoride, uh, they use it as in a reactive chemical process to make uh, resins, uh, plastic resins and things like that. Uh, it's, also, it's also been used uh, in the past as an insecticide. So when it kills, it kills people much like it would an insect. And how toxic is it? Oh, it's very toxic. That's why it's regulated by EPA. Um, it would act like a gigantic uh, roach motel if you were ever to get near it. So... What are the regulations that the chemical industry is, is obligated to follow here in terms of, of tightening plant security? There are none. There's absolutely none, which is the point of, of a great deal of federal legislation that's going forward um, from both the Republican and the Democratic side to try to uh, shore up shoddy security, years of bad security at chemical plants. So in other words, if I wanted to have like a million gallons of, of highly poisonous chlorine gas compressed in at my industrial plant... Um, that's just fine. I don't have to worry about any regulations as long as it's an industrial zone someplace. Exactly. And some cities have no zoning. Uh, you go to Houston and you'll find uh, a major petrochemical plant sitting right next to a, a suburban 
uh, housing unit. I mean, it, it, it's just the way of life there. Um, Houston was one of the ones we targeted, and that was that was very scary, where you could simply walk up to a plant and, and realize that the school next door would be in, in the pathway of, of the toxic chemicals if they were released. So, Carl, somebody listening to this, and certainly me, I'm thinking, all right, these plants really sound vulnerable. What evidence has there been that chemical plants uh, could in fact be likely terrorist targets? Well, first of all, they have been terrorist targets in the past. Um, There were a couple white supremacist groups in California and Texas which tried to unleash uh, toxic chemicals. Um, One was propane, and the other one, I believe, was chlorine gas. Um, In the the war in Croatia in the mid-'90s, the Serbs actually targeted uh, with their artillery uh, Croatian chemical plants in an attempt to release it. Uh, most recently in Israel, uh, Israeli authorities are investigating an attack at, at a port facility there where they believe the suicide bombers were um, detonating so close to chemical tanks in an effort to release uh, uh, toxic chemicals. And, and the crazy thing is we also know that al-Qaeda was targeting chemical plants. We know that Mohammad Atta had looked at a plant in Tennessee. And in the bunkers in um, Tora Bora and some other parts of Afghanistan, when they were overrun by U.S. troops, they discovered uh, – chemical industry plans that uh, the terrorists had been looking at. You're really scaring me here, Carl. It, I mean, it sounds like these places are so easy to break into that I'm just puzzled why we haven't had more reports of terrorists trying to take advantage of the situation. Well, that's something that's interesting. There have been a couple of alerts that have been put out by Homeland Security about chemical uh, plants being targeted, and also uh, rail lines. Uh, rails, uh, rail carries the bulk of America's chemicals, and uh, there there have been a number of alerts about rail shipments of, of chemicals. In fact, when the uh, war in Afghanistan began uh, two years ago, uh, there was actually a, a two-day moratorium on shipments of chlorine gas. So what you're saying is that terrorists could target a, um, a freight train loaded with chlorine gas that might pass right through some major urban area? Yeah, this is a big issue right now in Washington, D.C. There's an ordinance before the city council there where they're debating whether they should uh, move uh, tankers of of chlorine gas and other chemicals around the city. Uh, they certainly do it whenever the, uh, there's a major sporting event or the president is doing something uh, that it draws a great deal of people. This is something that, that the government doesn't often tell the public. How much chlorine, let's say, gas might be on a freight train going through a city? It depends on on what they're carrying on their manifest, but a lot of times you'll see – let's say you go to a plant. We went to one plant in Houston in uh, Green Bio, which is right next to to a major population center in Houston. And uh, on paper, what they report to the EPA for their worst-case scenario is just one tanker, which is all they have – all they're required to to report. And in their plant, they might have three or four giant tankers, uh, maybe 400,000 pounds. But they have a rail line (laughs) with about 20 of these tankers. Uh, waiting to go in to be used in the reactive process to make insecticide or a number of other chemical products that they make there. So you have to ask yourself, why would a terrorist even bomb the chemical plant itself when when they can simply blow up the whole rail line with 20 tanker cars? I mean, we're talking about uh, millions of, of pounds of chlorine. And that would affect how many people? What they report is about a million people, but in reality, it would probably be far, far worse because of the sheer quantity of it. It would be very hard to dissipate it. There was a uh, chlorine uh, tanker that, that ruptured in Ontario, uh, Mississauga, Ontario, in the 1980s, and it caused the evacuation of the city of a quarter of a million people for over a week. What information is given to people who live near these plants? 
that was something very interesting that we uh, found as we went from plant to plant was the fact that most people had no idea what they were living next to. And that was the same in Houston or Pittsburgh. It was always that big plant next door that made stuff. They had no idea really what it, what it was or, or what they stored. Um, there are no guidelines right now for uh, telling people. They report to local emergency planning commissions. They report to the state. They report to EPA. But no one tells the people. And in fact, government's making it harder for the people to find out. What kind of information has been kept under wraps since 9-11 regarding chemical plants? Uh, well, it's a, it's a long list. Uh, first of all, there had been a, a movement uh, under the Clinton administration to uh, put a lot of these risk management plans from EPA online so that people could see what are the vulnerabilities in their community. They could say, well, gosh, I, I live next to this chemical plant. I had no idea that it had these chemicals in it. I didn't realize that it could do this to me and my family. Um, that, those are all gone now. Those went uh, immediately after 9-11. A great many county agencies, which are supposed to uh, disseminate information about chemical plants, um, have simply shut down when it comes to giving the public any information at all about chemical plants in their area. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, the state, uh, State Emergency um, Command uh, Center in, in uh, Harrisburg, refuses to hand out any of this information, um, even though uh, we haven't seen any reason why they shouldn't do it under the under our our public uh, records laws. So there has been a chilling effect from 9/11 um, when it comes to chemical safety issues. What action can residents uh, take to find out what's in their neighborhood? Industry under the um, the American Chemistry Coun uh, Council's Responsible Care Plan uh, does require. Uh, companies have uh, citizen action programs where they actually uh, will go out and meet with the communities and they'll and they'll uh, talk to people in the neighborhood. Um, however, ACC uh, manufacturers are only about seven percent of all the chemical plants across the United States. So probably, if someone really wanted to know, they should probably knock on the door and say, "Hey, <laughs> what's going on here?" And, and see if they get a straight answer. If they don't, then they should talk to their local emergency planning commissions. The, that's a quasi-governmental agency that's supposed to uh, alert the public and plan for disasters. And if they don't get a response there, then they should call EPA and set up an appointment to go to a reading room and find out the information for themselves. Or let's hope that there are some intrepid reporters out there who go out and, uh, and inform the, the public about this. Uh, certainly there's been great work done in Louisville and Baltimore and Portland and other places where they said, well, you know what, we think the public has a right to know. Now, um, some would say that um, talking about this uh, would give information to terrorists. Oh, here's an opportunity to really make life absolutely miserable in the United States, and, and these journalists are, are giving us the blueprint for it. Yeah, unfortunately, the blueprint has been in al-Qaeda's hands for a long time. We know that they've been targeting um, or looking at uh, chemical plants. Um, so there's, you know, the, the science out there has been out there for a long time. Uh, Al-Qaeda's targeting has been known for a long time. It seems the only people who don't know this are, are the people uh, who live next to these plants. Someplace along the line, Carl, uh, one of these companies, one of the federal officials you've dealt with said, Carl, I'm really glad you're doing this. This stuff really scares the, 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 the hickeys out of me, and no one's paying attention. Have you had that conversation with anyone? Oh, yeah. I have that conversation all the time. Uh, strangely enough, coming mostly from uh, chemical plant security managers who have been trying to get money for their programs for years. Um, oftentimes, these guys are the former chiefs of police in their community or their uh, former members of FBI or the Selective Service, and they're used to a little bit better budget than they get um, when, when they go to work for the plant. They're paid better, but the number of guards they hire, the practices they want to employ to deter 
um, intruders is simply not there. Without getting somebody fired, tell me the story of somebody who said that to you. Well, I'll tell you, there's a, there's a really good guy out there. His, his name's Saul DePasquale. He used to work for Georgia Pacific. Um, Georgia Pacific owns a great many uh, chemical plants. Some of these are file risk management plans. And he realized after 9-11 that the industry as a whole had done very little to um, protect itself, that uh, they were terrorist targets, um, and that um, they could not rely on FBI or CIA to give them the information in advance. In a sense, they would have to protect themselves, um, form their own little castles in case they were ever attacked. And he came away very disenchanted with what industry was doing. Um, It should be noted, however, that with a lack of federal and state uh, benchmark standards for security, the only uh, group that's doing anything to secure chemical facilities are, are members of the chemical industry themselves. Um, the American Chemistry Council and, and SOCMA, the Synthetic Organic uh, Chemical Manufacturing Association, these are the only two that really have binding rules on their members that say, listen, if you don't improve security, you're no longer a member. And how effective has that been, do you think? I hate to say it, in some of our tests, and, they, and our tests have not been scientific in any way, we simply walk in and walk out. Um, we have found that the ACC and SOCMA members are, have been uh, no different than the uh, other companies, but at least they're trying. And I will say that the, uh, when you inform them about what you did, they are very quick to make changes. And uh, we have worked uh, with them um, to reorient cameras or string up new barbed wire or reposition guards. Um, because uh, certainly we do not want anybody to attack a plant that we've written about. Now, of course, there are environmentalists out there uh, who will say, listen, this is all a red herring. We shouldn't be talking about adding barbed wire and and posting more guards. What we really should be doing is getting these chemicals out of major metropolitan areas to begin with. Um, Many of these technologies are outmoded. Um, They could have have gone to safer chemicals a long time ago, but it's just cheaper to use the, the bulk dangerous stuff. I take no position on this whatsoever, but I think it's an interesting policy debate that's been forming in Washington, D.C. about how best to uh, shore up security. Um, Carl, um, before we go, tell me, what kind of facilities are in your own neighborhood? Oh, there's a great many. Uh, Pittsburgh is a major chemical um, manufacturing and distribution center. Uh, We have rail lines and and waterways that connect us to the rest of the continental United States. So uh, there are millions and millions and millions of pounds of chemicals uh, stored in and around Pittsburgh. Uh, You can't swing a dead cat around here and not hit a chemical plant. It's not that unusual. It's very similar to what you would see in in Houston or, or Louisiana or New Jersey. Carl Prine is a reporter with the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Thanks for speaking with me today. Well, thank you. Just ahead, yes, we have no bananas, but we do have a story about how this fruit became the world's most successful crop and efforts underway to keep it from going extinct. First, this note on emerging science from Cynthia Graver. For decades, the pesticides chlorpyrifos and diazinon were sprayed inside homes primarily to kill roaches. They proved dangerous to human health, and a few years ago, the EPA phased out home use. Now, scientists at Columbia University say the insecticides lead to lower birth weight and smaller newborns. 
1998, the researchers began following a group of 314 pregnant women in New York City to gauge the effects of toxins on infants. They tested the blood levels of the newborns and found that a third of these babies had extremely high levels of both chemicals in their bodies. Those babies were on average six and a half ounces lighter and a third of an inch shorter than babies with no measurable levels of the chemicals. The EPA banned these pesticides for home use while the study was already underway. After the chemicals were fully phased out of New York homes, almost all babies were born larger and heavier. Scientists say they'll follow these children to see if the pesticides affect their development. They also caution that these chemicals are still being used extensively on farms, and children born to farm workers may be affected. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Aveda, an earth-conscious beauty company committed to preserving natural resources and finding more sustainable ways of doing business. Information available at Aveda.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities on the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The banana is the world's most commercially successful fruit. In just over a century, this native of the tropics has become a huge agricultural, transportation, and marketing miracle. But the banana, as North Americans know it, is in trouble. Some are even whispering the E-word, extinction, and fear that bananas we eat could disappear in five to ten years' time. How could it have come to this? We asked producer Bob Carty to pull back the peel of the banana's story, past and present, to help us understand the magnitude of the threat and the search for solutions. Here's his story. Will the banana split? In the Central American country of Honduras, the markets are full of bananas. And two things strike you right away. One is that the bananas on sale here are not the uniform and unblemished bananas we get in our northern supermarkets. Here, old men and young girls are selling bananas in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Filipino, se llama. This is a Filipino. This is Morocco. Morocco. Platano? Platano, macho. So this is a plantain. What do you call these tiny little bananas? They're about a finger long. Dátiles. How many can you eat? ¿Cuántos pueden comer Five. And that's the other thing you notice here. People eat a lot of bananas. Some shoppers are carrying off half a stock, 60 or 70 ripe bananas. North Americans eat about 28 pounds of bananas a year. People here and in Africa eat as much as 500 pounds. Randy Pletz is a professor of plant pathology at the University of Miami. He explains that 90% of all bananas are never exported. They're eaten locally. They are the world's fourth most important crop. Three to four hundred million people in the world depend upon it as their primary source of carbohydrates. And uh, international commerce in banana is worth about five billion dollars a year. Which means a lot of people, a lot of nations, depend upon the banana tree. It's actually a herb. It's not a tree. You're kidding, a herb. Yes. In fact, there are bananas up to maybe 15, 20 feet that are the world's largest herbs. It's really an ancient crop, 8,000, 9,000 years old. Now, what's also interesting is that the banana, which we usually associate with South America, is actually Asian. 
Muslim traders brought the banana from Asia to Africa, and then slave traders brought them to the Caribbean and Central America to feed their slaves. But according to Virginia Scott Jenkins, the author of Bananas: An American History, the fruit only became big business in the 1880s with the development of refrigerated steamships. Then it was possible to transport bananas from the Caribbean to North American ports. So, U.S. fruit companies went into Central America. They purchased millions of acres of land and cut down the rainforest and planted thousands of acres of bananas. And so the sounds of the rainforest were replaced by the sound of banana stems being trundled from field to packing plant on overhead networks of cables. That's how some of the most diverse ecologies on Earth disappeared. Growing bananas on an industrial scale was one thing. Next, firms like the United Fruit Company had to get northern consumers to buy them. Remember that in the 1880s, most people didn't even know what a banana looked like. And then there was that、uh, little cultural problem: the suggestive shape of the banana. Well, the shape of the banana is a little difficult for some people,、um, in, particularly in the Victorian era. Bananas were not considered very genteel.、Uh, one of the interesting things I found was the early instructions for how to eat a banana.、Um, etiquette books, you know, what to do when you find a banana in front of you at a formal dinner party. Indeed, what to do. Well, readers of the 1888 edition of the Correct Thing in Good Society. Learned that the last thing you did was pick up a banana, pull back the skin, and bite off a piece, especially if you were a woman. No, the proper way to face the fruit, if you had to at all, was with a silver fruit knife and fork. The banana companies were able to overcome these cultural impediments, and they did it with aggressive marketing, extolling the virtues of the fruit and pricing it right. They sold them as the cheapest fruit in the market, and that was a deliberate decision. By the fruit companies to undersell local fruit, and the marketing bananas is absolutely amazing. The United Fruit Company marketed bananas with many health claims for people who were trying to gain weight, people trying to lose weight, people who had tuberculosis, female complaints, asthma, all kinds, of, all kinds of things. I am buying bunches of bananas. The marketing campaigns worked. By the early 1900s, bananas were everywhere, even showing up in popular culture, especially in songs.、Uh, some of them rather sexual. Let me put my banana in your fruit basket, and I'll be satisfied. And some of them just kind of silly. My wife left town with a banana. My baby slipping away. Back in Central America, the banana business brought jobs and economic growth, but also a number of political problems. There was the predictable corruption that takes root when a foreign company buys up a big chunk of your nation. Then there were the company towns, the union busting, the refusal by banana companies to pay taxes, all of which aroused a certain amount of local anger and protest, which in turn was met with American gunboat diplomacy. Down to the banana republics, down to the tropical sun, come the expatriated Americans, expecting to have some fun. 
In the early decades of the 20th century, U.S. Marines occupied Honduras five times, Panama four times, Nicaragua twice, to say nothing of other kinds of interventions in El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and Guatemala. And decade after decade, banana production kept rising. But another problem was developing. Diseases kept killing banana plants. Randy Platt says the problem was the kind of banana they were growing. Big Mike, uh, Gros Michel, a really excellent banana. Produced very large bunches and very large fingers. Um, it could chop the entire bunch down and throw it in the back of a railroad car and take it off to a ship, so it didn't require any special handling. It's a really good banana. Six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch! Oh, of course, how could I forget that? Yeah, now he was in, in fact, in that song, he's talking about Gros Michel. That was the banana that made the, the Jamaican trade so successful. Big Mike has all these really great attributes that I mentioned earlier, but it's Achilles' heel. Is it's very susceptible to um, uh, race one of Panama disease. Uh, it's a disease that's caused by a, a soil-borne fungus, kills the plant outright. And not only that, Panama disease couldn't be controlled with fungicides. The only way the banana companies could keep ahead of Panama disease was by moving their plantations, cutting down more virgin rainforest to use soil that wasn't diseased. But by the 1950s, they were running out of new rainforest to cut down. The Big Mike export banana was being wiped out. Yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. But then we got lucky. And for this part of the story, meet another banana aficionado. Uh, to me, the world in bananas will be a very boring place. <laughs> this is Adolfo Martinez, the director general of the Honduran Foundation for Agricultural Research. Adolfo explains that just as the big Mike was withering away on the stem, they discovered the Cavendish banana, a banana that tasted almost as good as the big Mike, but was also resistant to Panama disease. It was, however, a delicate fruit. It had to be shipped in protective boxes in plastic. And, as Adolfo Martinez points out, it was very susceptible to another kind of banana disease called black cigatoca. And there's only one way to fight that. You have to use pesticides. Uh, you have to use fungicides with Cavendish up to 50 times a year. That's about weekly. So, so the so, cost of that is? The cost of that varies between 500 and $800 a year per hectare. That means that a quarter of the price we pay for a bunch of bananas goes to drenching them in pesticides. Food inspectors say they don't usually detect any pesticide residues in the fruit. The real impact of pesticides is on the health of banana workers and on the environment. Back now to banana history, where along came, you guessed it, another problem. Yet a new disease appeared just a couple of years ago. It's a mutant of the old disease called Tropical Race 4 Panama disease. It's now present in Indonesia, Taiwan, and Pakistan, perhaps elsewhere. And with global trade and travel, experts say it will inevitably get to this hemisphere. It will be a disaster, and it will wipe out completely the Cavendish production that we have today. Yes, we have no bananas. Bananas in Scranton, PA. What can be done about this looming disaster? Banana companies could try to develop a fungicide that works on this disease. Experts say that would be costly, and it would mean using a lot of fungicide, which wouldn't make consumers or banana workers or the environment very happy. Other experts are promoting a high-tech solution, 
genetically engineering the banana for resistance to diseases. Professor Randy Platt says there are institutes and companies actually working on this, trying to decode the banana's DNA. Genetic engineering offers the glimmer of hope that you would be able to um, produce a banana like Cavendish that has only one thing changed disease resistance. But then what happens once you get that banana? I know people in uh, uh, Europe really uh, are strongly opposed to that type of product. So you'd lose a, a major market uh, if you had that type of banana. Then there's the possibility of creating a new banana by traditional breeding methods, mating one kind of banana with another kind to get disease resistance plus good taste. The problem here has to do with sex, or more precisely, the lack of it. Bananas can produce fruit without pollination. Uh, in bananas, uh, the banana plant produces the male and the female flowers at different times. So that's, that's one of the reasons you don't find many or you don't hardly find any seeds in banana plants. The other reason is because bananas are sterile per se. They're sterile. They're sterile. <laughs> they got it all mixed up. Yes, they do. <laughs> bananas don't, don't have a lot of sex. <laughs> yes, for all its phallic appearance the commercial banana is sexually decrepit. They've been selected over thousands of years precisely because they don't have seeds. Commercial bananas are propagated by taking shoots from the mother plant. And that lack of sex means that plantation bananas are genetically identical and uniformly susceptible to disease. So, how do you get some genetic diversity into commercial bananas? At the Honduran Agricultural Research Institute, Adolfo Martinez likes to show off rows and rows of banana plants that are all different. This is our future, we think. Some are big, some are tall. They all have different properties. They have resistance to disease, uh, different flavors. Adolfo has 368 varieties of bananas here, out of about 1,000 species that are known around the world. For four decades, Adolfo's institute has been trying to get different varieties to mate with each other, and Adolfo gives them a helping hand, literally. His workers put ladders up into the banana plants and scrape the pollen off the male flowers of some varieties, then walk over to a field with a different variety of banana and by hand pollinate the female flowers. A few months later, they harvest the fruit. They peel and squish the bananas and then go through that mush to look for seeds. And they find a few, not many, maybe just three seeds in a hundred bananas. But those are the seeds of brand new banana varieties like the one Adolfo shows off with the pride of a new daddy. This is the best. It has a huge bunch. It's a plant that is practically immune to cigatoca, immune to disease, very resistant. They have slightly different flavor from the Cavendish, and that's the reason the company has not accepted it yet. But even if, if Panama disease uh, comes here, we have some alternatives right now. Adolfo Martinez believes his breeding program will save the banana and also help the small farmers of the world, who would never be able to afford a patented, genetically modified banana anyway. Adolfo's new breed is already being used in more than 50 countries. Cuba is growing them because they don't need pesticides. But are North American consumers ready for a new banana? The banana companies have spent so much money promoting just one kind of banana that they're loath to tackle the huge job of changing public attitudes about what a banana looks and tastes like. 
So instead of six kinds of apples, five kinds of pears, we're offered usually just one kind of banana. Wood shoppers eat a banana that might look a little different, taste a little different, maybe even taste a little better. Oh, by all means. I think I would try a great variety of bananas. Uh, I would. Uh, I've seen other different kinds. Sure. If it was sweet and I can use it for the same reasons. Smoothies. So it turns out that one of the most likely solutions to the looming banana crisis is giving consumers more banana choice. And that could be, dare I say it, appealing. For Living on Earth, I'm Bob Carty. I'm Chiquita Banana and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you But bananas like the climate of the very, very tropical equator So you should never put bananas in the refrigerator Oh, by the way, Chiquita Banana's line about bananas being from the equator So don't put them in the refrigerator it's, it's a fabulous rhyme, but it's not true. Bananas are refrigerated, of course, on the way to market. But the fruit companies wanted people to throw out overripe bananas and buy new ones. The fact is, if you put them in the refrigerator, the skin does turn black, but the fruit inside stays at the stage of ripeness you prefer. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue <laughs> and for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, the U.S. Department of Energy says it can safely store nuclear waste in Nevada's Yucca Mountain. But some workers there say Yucca Mountain is already unsafe, at least for them. After years of work drilling tunnels, they've learned that they've been exposed to particles that could cause cancers. I'm thinking I'm a dead man. DOE and his contractors intentionally exposed us to these carcinogenic substances just to meet their milestones. And, of course, collect their hefty bonuses. An old-fashioned health hazard at the new Yucca Mountain facility, next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Before we go, one more stop in the land where the banana grows. Andrew Roth recorded this rainforest symphony along the canals of the Tortuguero in Costa Rica. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Cynthia Graber, Ingrid Lovett, and Jeff Young. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Now Taro engineered this program with help from Paul Weybrick and Stephen Belter. Allison Dean composed our theme. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear.
I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. Ten percent of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Oak Foundation for coverage of marine issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.